Oh, let's give the praise band a hand. Give them a hand, okay? That's great. Every time we do that last song, I like Logan. So I really uh, appreciate it. I like him all the time, but that's one of my favorites. Well, we're trekking through the Sermon on the Mount, which we've entitled Living the Jesus Life. And today we're going to talk about anger and reconciliation. But before we get to that, prior to our text, Jesus talks about his relationship to the Old Testament law. And uh, it really sets up the rest of the chapter. So let's read starting verse 17. It says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I want you to notice how emphatic Jesus is here. He said, I did not come to abolish the law. The smallest letter, the least stroke of a pen, will not by any means disappear. And anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands is going to be least in the kingdom. He is emphatic. The Old Testament is not to be thrown out. It is not to be ignored, like some Christians uh, treat the Old Testament. But Jesus said, I came to fulfill it. He came to bring about the fully intended purpose of the law, and in so doing, he actually strengthens it. One of the complaints the Pharisees and teachers of the law had about Jesus is he was anti-law. He, he didn't follow the Old Testament law. Now, the Pharisees and teachers of the law were very particular about knowing and obeying God's word, making sure they were following every commandment, every detail, very meticulous they had commentaries and oral traditions that helped explain the Old Testament so they could follow it more fully. And yet Jesus says, if you want to enter heaven, you've got to be better than those guys. These experts in the law, your righteousness has to surpass them, which begs the question, who is really righteous? If we can't be, I mean, if we have to be better than these guys, how can I be righteous? Who is righteous? Well, today we'd say, righteous person goes to church every Sunday. They're kind to their neighbor, they help others that are generous, they read the Bible, they recycle, they, they're kind to animals and they pray. You can do all those things and still not be righteous. It's not an easy question. How is our righteousness to exceed that of these people who followed God's word so carefully? What is Jesus getting at in this sermon? And I can tell you what he's not teaching in this sermon. He's not teaching a new set of rules. He's not giving us a new legalism. What Jesus requires is not greater legalism, but greater righteousness, and there is a difference. You can mechanically obey the rules, do not murder, do not commit adultery, don't cuss, don't text while you're driving, don't beat your wife, you know, don't speed on the internet, whatever, and you can keep all the rules, but still not be in line with the full intentions of the law. Legalism stops with the letter of the law and actually can undermine it. When I say the word, I want to be careful here, lawyer, what do you think of when you hear that word? Now, I'm not picking on lawyers. We have some that come to church here, but even they would agree. The word lawyer does not conjure up images of law-abiding, morally exemplary citizens. If your son is a lawyer, please forgive me. I know some people have kids that are lawyers, but, but this is a general cultural feeling, isn't it? And we tell jokes about how slimy they are, and I had someone last week ask me to please not be a comedian, so I'm not going to tell a joke about lawyers. But when you think of them... <laughs> You don't usually think of righteousness, and yet, what's the lawyer's job? To know the law. 
and knowing laws, even following laws, does not make anyone righteous. In America, we have more and more laws. Do we have more righteousness? In the church, we can be legalistic and make more rules and regulations about what you can and cannot do. Will that make us more righteous? Jesus is not teaching a new legalism. He wants to get to the intention of the law, not the letter of the law. But he's also not teaching the opposite. Some will go the other extreme and say, all that matters is what's in your heart, you know, your motive, your sincerity. Now, Jesus is interested in our motives and in our heart and sincerity. However, you can be sincere and have a good heart and be sincerely wrong. We still need an objective guide to guard us. So he's not teaching subjectivism either. Some would say there's only one thing we have to do, just love. That's all that counts. And there's kind of some truth in that. That is our mission, to love God and love people. But how are we to love God and love people? Who determines that? And people will get very subjective about this and have ideas how I should love God and ignore the Bible, which gives us the objective criteria for loving God. Say, all I need is Jesus in my heart. And we end up with a homemade, self-made religion that's mystical, mushy, and gooey, but not what Jesus was getting at. So how do we surpass the righteousness of these scribes and Pharisees? I'm going to suggest, a little bit oversimplistically, but combine the two, the objective and the subjective. Follow the objective word. There are guidelines, laws given by God, very clear cut, and yet we have to do them with the right spirit and motivation. Let that word infiltrate and penetrate our hearts and minds. Our subjective relationship to God is to love Him and love His kingdom and His church and our hearts are in the right place. But we also have to have an objective revelation of how we're to love Him, to follow His word and obey it. And the result is what Jeremiah predicted and looked forward to. The law is written on their hearts. That's the righteousness Jesus wants. The objective law imprinted on our hearts and minds. Jesus stated both of these later. He said, if you love me, the subjective part, Keep my commands, the objective. You and I don't decide how to love God. God decides that, and he reveals it through his word. That's why we need to know his word. And then in the next several verses in Matthew 5, Jesus cites several of the ways that the Pharisees and teachers of the law followed the law of God. And then Jesus proceeds to tell how he wants us to follow the law of God and how to accomplish the original purpose. So Jesus begins with the sixth commandment, in verse 21, he says, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That would be what the Pharisees and teachers of the law would teach, and they would be correct. That's the sixth commandment, of course. Murder is wrong. But your righteousness must surpass that. So he goes on. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So the sixth commandment is not just about killing, it's about the heart of a killer. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Now, when I was studying this, I thought, Jesus is getting all that? out of the sixth commandment? You not only don't kill, you don't even get angry. And even more, you do everything you can to reconcile. That far surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. 
and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you paid the last penny. So there's two main topics. First, Jesus talks about the relationship between murder and anger. And then he takes it a step further and talks about the importance of restitution with fellow believers and the importance of forgiveness and repentance. And what he is saying is behind the command to not kill is an attitude to not be angry with others and to reconcile. It's a relationship commandment. So two main teachers, what Jesus condemns is anger and what he commands is forgiveness. Most of us would say, well, I've not broken the sixth commandment, do not murder. Well done, Pharisee. And we've all done that, most of us anyway. But most of us would have to admit, we've been angry. Maybe angry enough to hurt someone. I did a survey here, some of you might remember, I think two or three years ago, a survey of the seven deadly sins, just to find out what kind of sinners we had in our church. And uh, we're pretty good at these. Anyway, if I remember right, I'm pretty sure both men and women put down anger as their number one sin. We're an angry church. That's good news, isn't it? And then I got to think, you know, there is a difference usually between male anger and female anger. Male anger, just generally, I'm going to say, tends to be more of a short anger, just flares up, quick-tempered. Men usually get angry a little more quickly and sometimes too easily. A few weeks ago, that guy that shot the female reporter and the cameraman in Virginia, remember why? Yeah, the murderer himself said, my anger has been a human powder keg waiting to go boom. And that's male anger, just blows up. Now, I know some females have this issue too, but, but this seems to be a little more of a male trait. Men may tend to duke it out and then move on, flares up quickly and then dies down quickly. Female anger then, of course, tends to be long anger. It may not flare up as quickly, but it tends to hang on and smolder and more resentment and grudge holding. I know males that do this too, but generally speaking, in my observation, it's been more of a female trait. They just have a little harder time letting go. Am I right? In his best-selling book, The Telling Room, Michael Paternity shares a true story he heard when visiting his father's ancestral village in Sicily. Every day while he was in the village, he saw a very old woman walk, walking with a cane, struggling up a deep road to get uh, a steep road to get to the cemetery, the local cemetery. And he was told at this tortoise pace, the walk from her home to the cemetery and back took six hours out of her day. And every day she made that walk, six hours to the cemetery and back. Why? Driven by sorrow for the loss of a child or loss of a husband? No. The locals told paternity that she was driven by osteo, which is the word for bitter hatred. Her arch enemy was buried in that cemetery. So rain or shine, the old woman walked up the hill every day to her enemy's gravesite just to spit on it one more time. Can't let it go. So anger can be too quick and it can be too long. And in the Bible, both are condemned. James says, be slow to anger, for the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. And then Ephesians 4 says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to, do that to the devil. In other words, don't let it linger. And did you notice back in our text on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus mentions brother or sister several times. Is anyone who's angry with a brother or sister, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, or remember that your brother or sister has something against you? Well, in Matthew, whenever that word, that phrase, brother or sister, is used, it's always in the context of conflict and reconciliation. Matthew 18, for instance, if there's a problem with a brother or a sister, you go be reconciled to him. If that doesn't work, you take a couple of people with you. If that doesn't work, 
You get the whole church involved, get the elders involved, and do everything you can to reconcile with that brother or sister. So Jesus takes this commandment on murder and makes it into a lesson on conflict. And in this way, the sixth commandment is relevant to every one of us. How many of us have not been angry or had conflict? And in any conflict, somehow anger is usually present, even if it's only a minor irritation. Now, Ellen says when she's mad, she slams the door. She's not done it yet in five years, but I think she's been mad. So she slams the door. I know I better run. What Jesus does is point out the course, some steps of development of anger, a process we could call it. Step one would be the anger within. Something's seething there. The angry person has not done anything yet. He's just kind of mad. And very often it doesn't go any farther than that. He or she contains it and it eases off after a while. But if the anger continues to stay there and rise, it eventually comes to the point where it must come out and it's an anger verbalized. That's the name-calling stage, spewing forth on Facebook, you know, calling names, verbal abuse. Kind of like a tea kettle gets hot enough, it has to blow off the pressure and lashes out in verbal abuse. And Jesus in 22 said again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell... Those are two words, two of the most common words for insulting back then. Raka is a word for empty. It's an attack on someone's intelligence. You empty-headed imbecile, you stupid idiot. Raka. Fool is the Greek word moros, from which we get moron, and that's about moral character, someone who is godless. It's condemning a brother to hell with our words because they are so evil. So you're empty-headed and you're evil. If you put the two words together, it'd be like saying, go to hell, you idiot. And what's interesting about it, Jesus says the punishment for those kind of angers is what? You'll go to hell. And then the actual act of violence, the killing, step three, is anger actualized. And a lot of sin develops that way. There's the inner thought, there's an outward expression in words, and then the act itself. And I was asked, Logan asked me this last week, is it okay to be angry at times? Well, the Bible says God is an angry God. Sometimes Jesus got mad, Moses did, Jeremiah got mad, some really good men of God got mad. Surely there are times it's justified and even good. However, here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does not say there might be some good reason for being angry. He seems to prohibit the emotion altogether, especially when it comes to your relationship with a brother or sister. He says if you're angry with a brother or sister, you're subject to judgment. It's wrong, period. And some say this is another example where Jesus is just impractical and unreasonable and maybe even wrong. I think most of us would agree there are times we should be angry. Shouldn't we be angry when we see a child mistreated or animals mistreated? Shouldn't we be angry when we see this country going a bad way or angry when we see our kids doing self-destructive things or angry when we see Satan winning and getting his way? Some say this is hyperbole by Jesus it was never intended to cover all circumstances, and there are times we should be angry, and there are scriptures that seem to support that, like Psalm 4, 4 says, when you are angry, do not sin, or Ephesians 4, 26, be angry, but do not sin. So you might be angry, but you still can avoid sinning. You, you just need to deal with it in the right way. So is, is it ever right to get angry? But the answer I would give, and I think this would be the biblical answer, very, very seldom is it good to be angry. It is so dangerous. There are some people, I think you'd say they have an angry personality. They just seem mad all the time or get mad so easily. What do you think of them? Not smart. Stay away. Beware. 
There are times, perhaps we should be angry, but I don't believe I've seen righteous anger very often. More often than not, anger opens the door for Satan, as Ephesians says, and it gives opportunity to the devil. It seldom accomplishes anything constructive. You will not win friends through anger. You will not change people through anger. You will not bring people to Jesus through anger. You will not heal your marriage because you're mad. Colossians 3.8, Paul says you must get rid of all such things, and then he lists them, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Get rid of them. Ephesians says, put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger. James says, your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Ecclesiastes says, anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Now, I'm going to say this. Jesus might be implying, even if there is a good cause for anger, and I believe there's times there are good causes, anger in and of itself is against the will of God. In fact, he's very specific here. It's not just get angry in general, but it's being angry with a brother or sister because it kills relationships. It murders them. Back in the first sermon on this uh, Sermon on the Mount series, one of the ways we need to interpret this message is through a future lens. The kingdom of God is coming to earth and we will live eternally with our Lord in the new kingdom and everything will be what God intends it to be. And we always need to ask, will there be killing in the new kingdom? No. Will there be anger in the new kingdom? No. And in the Sermon on the Mount, in many of these cases, Jesus is telling us as much as possible, you live the future life now. You bring heaven to earth. His kingdom come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we followers of Jesus should be a sneak preview of the future. And there's not going to be any anger in heaven. The prohibition to anger is not so much hyperbole as it is a foretaste of the fullness of the will of God. Will there be conflicts in heaven? No. Then get rid of your conflicts on earth. Bring the future into the present as much as possible. Proverbs 14, 29 says, Whoever is patient has great understanding, but one who is quick-tempered displays folly. We all know this, don't we? Haven't we all displayed folly in anger? Seneca called anger a brief insanity. The ra- one of the rabbis said, The angry man forgets what he has learned and becomes more and more stupid. We've all seen intelligent, successful people. I, I, I don't know if I'm intelligent or successful, but I've done it. And we become maniacs when the anger hits. When we're angry, we're weakened, our guard is down, we say things we shouldn't, we do things we shouldn't, we hurt others, we hurt ourselves, we hurt the church, we hurt the cause of Christ, it hurts this unity, it could cause irreparable damage. Anger toward a brother or sister essentially saying, I wish you were dead. And so Jesus is saying, do not commit murder in your heart. 1 John 3.15, anyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. So what's the cure? Seneca said hesitation is the best cure. Count to ten, time out, we know about that. If you're really mad, recite the alphabet three times. Another said anger can be mastered through the singing of psalms. I'm so mad, I'm going to sing a psalm. Well, maybe that'll help. Here's what Jesus says, verse 23. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Overcome anger by making peace with the one you're angry with. So he's not telling isolated individuals subdue and repress that passion, but as brothers and sisters, we are to go about the often awkward task of trying to right perceived wrongs. Don't repress it. Don't lash out verbally. Deal with it by becoming the opportunity for repairing a broken relationship. When harmony is established with the object of anger, the anger will dissipate. One of the toughest things I've ever had to do in my life 
is apologize to my teenage daughter. Oh, she made me so mad. Well, no one makes you mad. You decide to be mad. But that's what it takes to apologize, do everything we can to reconcile. And he gives the example of you're offering a gift at the altar, you're church and you're singing, taking communion, you're putting money in the plate, and you remember there's a conflict that you have that's not been resolved. What do you do? He says, first you go be reconciled and then offer your gift to God. Now, first means of most importance. It's not so much a time word. He's just saying it's a priority word. It's not, he's not saying necessarily get up halfway out of church. You know? The point is, it's hard to worship God when you have hate and anger in your heart. It's just hard. Get those horizontal relationships right in order to make your vertical relationships right. And I think we all know that reconciliation is harder than donation. It's easier to give a sacrifice and give an offering than to be made right with someone. It's easier to plop a check in the offering plate than to do the hard work of forgiveness. I was reading about one minister, and he recalled a painful moment in his marriage. He said, I just assumed responsibility for my first congregation, and I worked long, hard hours Things were going well at the church, attendance increasing, finances had improved, a new sanctuary was on the drawing boards. He said, within my marriage relationship, however, I was not doing well. Often away from home, I was denying the person close to me, closest to me the attention, time, and energy necessary for real caring and real communication. Coming home late one night, I found a note on my bedside table, and it read, Trevor, I love you and want to be married to you. Sometimes I worry, though, that one day I may not be worried if you don't come home. I miss you and want to reconnect. And perhaps we need to ask ourselves, to whom do we need to drop a note? It may be awkward and hard, but there is no way to create reconciled relations with those around us until we intentionally decide to act on what Jesus summons us to do. He says, settle matters quickly. Take that first step. Settle matters quickly, not tomorrow, not next week. Do it today.